0: real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And this is Seriously, the pop culture podcast from The New Statesman.
2: Hello. Welcome to another episode of Seriously.
1: We're back. Anna, I understand you have been to see a famous musical.
2: I went to see Matilda at the Cambridge Theatre in London with my little sister, and yeah, it was really really good. It's really like sweet and very roll-darlish. Like they really go with the roll-darl humour like you know the famous Bruce Bogtrotter scene, mm. which I've decided is just like the best thing in all of literature. It's like a <laughs> kid like eating to defy everyone around him. It's really great. I love Rodolph things like that. Before his like triumph of eating the cake, he's trying to disguise the fact that it was him that ate the cake. But he does this a tremendous burp that gives him away, <laughs> and there's this like whole massive reverberation. It's like an enormous earthquake or something, and all the lighting and stuff changes, and like everyone's like full on shaking. So things like that which are like really silly were really really great and because I think we got these cheap tickets we were right in the middle of like a school trip. <laughs> it's like a school trip of me and my sister and they were really laughing and really enjoying it and the songs were great. So yeah it was very influenced by the Danny DeVito movie. I think. Yes
1: because I, I saw it a few years ago now when it first opened from a very sort of restricted view seat so mm. I don't feel like I have the greatest memories of visually what it looked like but i do remember it being quite especially the miss honey character i think is more from the movie than from the book but also i remember being a little bit put off by all the grown-ups wearing school uniforms
2: yeah there are a lot of those there's like normal kids who are all brilliant mm. by the way i don't even know who the lead matilda was in it but she was brilliant yeah and then they have adult kids because you kind of need them i think they, they're the kids that like bring on all the set and push off all oh, the set okay, as well yeah also there's like a scene where all the kids arrive for school and they're like really terrified of all the other kids so in that scene it kind of works because they're like much much older looking but then yeah sometimes it's really jarring because there's just like a five-year-old sat at a desk and then next to like a 28 year old
1: (laughs) but in in general i also really really loved it the music is amazing it's um sort of tim minchin yeah writ large it's really it's really funny so yeah that was great what about you caroline (laughs) i had a very quiet weekend of doing lots of sort of flat based admin really i went to a really nice supper club that my friend does but that that was about it really yeah so anyway enough of my boring life i think we should get on and talk about the actual stuff we're here to talk about the first of which is the film suffragette
2: yeah so we saw it about a week ago we went to a screening together which was lovely
1: yeah we went to a screen that was hosted by the charity care international I think mostly because one of their main employees is a woman called Helen Pankhurst, whose surname you may recognise <laughs> she is indeed a direct descendant of the Pankhursts of Suffragette Fame. Yeah, it was a it was a really interesting screening full of lots of like politicians and campaigners and people like that. We were sat right next to Sadiq Khan. <laughs> <Yeah>. Um the <laughs> Labour mayoral candidate. It's quite um, embarrassing to get that snotty next <laughs> next to her. Yeah, because we should say we cried. A lot.
2: Yeah, we did. We sort of had to... That awkward moment, which I always hate whenever I see any film at all, where, like, the credits roll and you have to, like, readjust yourself to your normal surroundings. (laughs) We were just, like, (laughs) sobbing and also sat next to, like, quite prominent people. (laughs) like, patting each other on the back, like, okay, let's try and, like, emerge back into our normal lives. Yeah,
1: I felt very self-conscious about all of the sniffling I was doing like I'm pretty sure he could tell but I don't think he would have minded I suppose given the fact that we cried that much it's fair to say that we we reacted strongly to the film yeah we, enjoyed
2: th- is not the right word no
1: is it? not at all because it, it is a very bleak film I mean do we need to explain what it's about I mean- well I suppose in the sense that it, it is perhaps slightly surprisingly if you haven't really been following the press and the lead-up to it it is not a film about Emmeline Pankhurst no it is a film about a fictional character who's a kind of amalgamation of various actually real women who, she's a working class woman from East London, she works in a big automated laundry in Bethnal Green and she gradually gets drawn into the suffragette movement and particularly a kind of militant cell of suffragettes in East London which did exist earlier. Women should not exercise judgement in political affairs.
0: If we allow women to vote, it will mean the loss of social structure. Vote of-
1: yeah it's just about the toll this takes on her life her sort of political awakening and the various events and protests that she's involved in
2: thank god i think mm. that that was the focus of the film because i think the least successful bits of the film for me were the ones that were much more about those recognizable figures with the exception of the like climax of the film which is extremely emotional which is said the famous derby so the focus on this like working class woman who has the movement thrust upon her as it were is a much better decision
1: yeah and by bringing class into the full ground like that. I think it makes all of the roles more interesting. So Carrie Mulligan plays the woman we're talking about, Maud Watts. But um, Romola Garai plays a sort of upper class woman who's the wife of a liberal MP. Mm-hmm. And she also wants to campaign for suffrage. And she's also very cognizant of the fact that there can't be women's suffrage unless it's for all women. So she speaks outside factories. She tries to encourage women to come and give their testimony at Parliament. She's trying very hard to use her position to give them a voice that they haven't had before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But she gets kind of derided and spat out in the street by the very woman she's trying to represent because they say well what's it to you you're posh you've got everything you need what does it matter if she was the main character you wouldn't have that kind of tension or dynamic
2: yeah and it's interesting because in an interview that our colleague helen lewis did with abby morgan the screenwriter for the film abby morgan says that romola Garay's character was meant to be the main character in one of their original drafts and in the process of writing that character as the lead they realized that how much they were missing from the a class perspective perspective and refocused it which I think just goes to show how important it is to, to make this like the fact that even as you're writing it they felt like oh no this is this is missing something so important.
1: The woman who really sort of radicalizes Maud I suppose played by Anne-Marie Duff also works in the laundry and she has her own sort of problems where so she's much more experienced at action and so on than Maud is and she's the one who sort of invites her to meetings and introduces her to her, mm-hmm. you know the local suffragettes but also then she's got an abusive husband who beats her up and then gets her pregnant so she is limited from taking part in various things for entirely different reasons than her own reserve or anything else she cannot be the one to testify before parliament on what it's like to work in their laundry because no one will take her seriously when she's
2: completely completely
1: bruised, bruised on her face so Maud has to do it instead and that's a whole again another you wouldn't be able to so easily include those issues if all of the characters were upper middle class and above
2: yeah and so what you end up with then is this interesting Portrait of a group of women who have all the passion in the world to want to make this cause go in their favour and achieve its aims. And actually there are so many external pressures on their lives and you and you see it from so many different angles. So, you know, you have someone like Romola Garai's character who really wants to help, has the, the funds and the means to, but actually doesn't have the independence to, because it, essentially it's her MP husband who prevents her from helping women. You have someone like Anne-Marie Duff's character who, again, if it wasn't for her husband, would be able mm. to do much more for the cause. And then you have Maud who, again, her husband just completely intervenes and makes things impossible also the law enforcement you know that and her place of work disown her so there's all these pressures on her life and then you have someone like helen bonham carter's character who plays a pharmacist whose husband is also a chemist and he's really really supportive and she has all the you know you see she seems to have all the freedom in the world then she gets ill which is one pressure, and then her husband locks her in a cupboard because she's ill and he's worried that she's going to like basically kill herself by campaigning too much. So even she, in the end, is thwarted by a man. And so you get this real spectrum of, of privilege and uh, a hierarchy of privilege, and yet all of them ultimately are frustrated by similar ends.
1: Yeah, by the men in their lives taking control of them and exerting that control. But also something else that the film really starkly brought out for me was Maud works in a big automated laundry where there's lots of like steam machines and the conditions are absolutely appalling and so she does nothing but wash and iron clothes all day and then there's this bit quite near the beginning where she comes home after work and her husband and her little son are there and you know they're really happy to see her and it's all this kind of well you know they're poor but they're happy in their little domestic arrangement and what does she have to start doing washing she gets a tub out and she starts washing and he says oh you're coming to bed she said, oh, I just need to finish this so this that is I the did... first
2: moment isn't it where you're like mm, don't like this guy
1: <laughs> don't like yeah but also just this it... I've rarely seen um, a clearer presentation on screen that women's work happens far from just in the workplace yeah of course that she's you know she's paid poorly for doing washing at work she's not paid for doing it at home but it's the same thing
2: and just that exhaustion that pervades all their lives that you're like how do you even have the energy at all Mm. So one of the things that it brought out for me as well in this film is that obviously they don't dwell on this much because it's not the point of the film. But there were so many women who were anti the suffragette movement. And you do see that when Maud is really kind of like disowned by her community. A lot of the people sort of judging her in the street are other women who say, oh, the shame of it and so on. For me, I was kind of like, God, if I was alive in that time, like I like to think that I would really, really have cared and really, really wanted to have pushed forward this movement and been right there. And actually, you'd be so tired and it would seem so impossible. And so
1: terrified.
2: And you would lose so much. Like, Maud loses so much over the course of the film. The worst plotline for me is the one involving her son. Just so emotional. And I just think, God, as much as I want to have been one of those women, the likelihood is I would not have been.
1: <laughs> yeah, same. Uh, That's exactly the same feeling I had. Or rather, I like to think that had I had the... Sort of privileges and advantages of someone like Romola Garai in that film. Then maybe I would have done what she did, but if I'd been a Maud, no no, chance, no chance. Yeah, Um, because you know, and we should say, not only is she dealing with work being impossible and home being difficult, but on top of just her job being hard, the foreman at her job is sexually abusing her, yeah, and has been since she's very young, yeah. And again, one of the sort of subplots that doesn't get an enormous amount of time, but is incredibly moving for that, is that. Anne-Marie Duff's daughter, Maggie, who's about the age that Maud was when she first started working at the laundry full-time, he's now turned his attentions to her. Mm. And Maud is completely plagued by this feeling that she should do something, that she should try and help this girl, which, spoiler alert, she does in the end. But there's just this constant feeling of the repetition of poverty. And for every Maud or Maggie that grow up and manage in spite of what's happened to them, there'll always be another girl ready to be taken advantage of by by this man and that that is devastating and the lack
2: of panic surrounding that whole plot line is really awful because you get the sense that her mum knows and just like is kind of resigned to it because it's almost like yes we could move to another factory we could move to another town as we have done millions of times and this would probably still happen that's the worst thing about it it's like it's not something you can run from it's just pervasive at every level of society
1: I think it's one of the best cinematic or even pop culture sort of representations of patriarchy Yeah, i've never gen-
2: seen yeah it's really really good on that i mean in the structural sense yeah and one of the things that they do so well is that they they layer it so it's just exactly it's pervading every single plot line in all relationships between men and women without it being like oh guys the patriarchy are at uh, it again suffocating me it is really good for that
1: and we should also talk a bit about i think the the film has provoked a bit of debate because of its perceived lack of diversity, all the the women in it are white, mm. and this is something you wrote a, a piece about. This you interviewed quite a few people to find out how accurate or otherwise that was.
2: Yeah, and I think the first thing I would say is that those I think those criticisms are completely fair because yeah. if you're someone who doesn't see yourself represented on screen, and this is a film, you know, saying that this was about the liberation of women, and you're like, well, I'm a woman and I don't see myself there. I think that's, you know, a good comment to make. What I talk about with these academics in the piece is that there's such a big difference between the American and UK um, suffragette movement. I spoke to one academic who's just said, yeah, the, the American one was hugely racist. And that is something that if you're doing a film about the American suffragette movement, you need to acknowledge. And there perhaps is is an argument that even in a a portrayal of the the UK suffragette movement, you need to acknowledge it because they were obviously in conversation. The other thing to say is that there were some Indian suffragettes working quite closely with the UK suffragette movement, most notably Sophia Duleep Singh, who's been written about recently in a biography by Anita Anand. And she's not in the film. And there aren't any Indian suffragettes in the Mm. film. So those are the two fair criticisms you could make. But I think in general, the movement wasn't very diverse immigration hadn't happened on a mass scale in the uk mm. the uk didn't look anything like it does today that doesn't mean that there weren't non-white women in the uk there were they weren't apparently particularly involved with the movement just because they were affected by all the things that we see that Maud is affected by in suffragette mm. that prevents her from joining the movement in a lot of ways more intensely poverty was hitting those communities harder and so mm. on so i think in an ideal world, they would have touched on it. They didn't... I think while those criticisms are fair, I'm not surprised, basically, that they didn't include some of those plot lines.
1: Yeah, and also I suppose their decision to sort of narrow the story right down to this small group of women in this one little part of London also informs that a bit. If they'd made the original film they were planning with Romer Garay's posh woman as the main character... Mm-hmm. I think it would be an even more justified criticism because that would have been a very one-dimensional film Absolutely. on lots of fronts. This, as I said, we, we really applaud its portrayal of class. Mm. It, I think Anita said in, when you spoke to her in your piece that it would have been nice.
2: Yeah, she said also, she wrote a piece for The Telegraph recently. She didn't say this when she spoke to me, but she said, I was looking when I was watching the film yeah. for like one face. Yeah, They could have just put in one face that wasn't white. That would have made me think like, okay, there's a nod there. Yeah, And they didn't. Which is a bit like you could have done that, guys.
1: Yeah, because I mean, there there are those scenes that take place in the the WSPU's headquarters yeah. where they're producing handbills and all the rest of it, and you just yeah. And Someone sat march at a desk in the mine yeah. could have been yeah.
2: And they have they have that final march scene and as the as a lot of people might have seen on Twitter and stuff, there is a very famous picture of, there was a a whole section of that march of people from different countries in the Commonwealth. So there was like an Australian branch, a group of women and a New Zealand group of women and an Indian group of women. And, you know, they have all these great banners, you know, saying that Indian women support the suffragettes and Mm. stuff and could have easily put them in, especially because it's quite a famous image yeah so that would have been nice so I think fair criticisms
1: but it doesn't entirely or, or even really at all detract from the film as it stands I don't think
2: one of the problems with making a film like this and calling it suffragette and like having all these shots of Emily and Pankhurst in the trailer and like this you know obviously climactic moment where Emily Wilding Davidson steps in front of the king's horse these kinds of things make you think well this is a film about the whole suffragette movement and it's not. So I think maybe that's a problem with the marketing of the film, I don't know, but it, this is a film about one woman's eventual transition from just being a normal working class woman to being at the front line of activism mm. for the cause, and that's the interest, that's why it's a, such a good film, I think.
1: It is, and just that, that bit that you mentioned with the the march at the end, which is the, the march that, well it's Emily Wilding Davison's funeral, isn't mm. it? The The point at which the world could no longer ignore the movement and, you know, tens of thousands of people turned out for that. And from then on, it feels anyway, reading about it from a 100 years hence, is from then on, they were on the winning side. There was an inevitability about it. They had
2: the martyr for their cause. There's a lot of chat in the film, isn't there, about like, we don't want anyone to become a martyr because then... We're, we're losing. That's what the police and, yeah. and the authorities are saying. As
1: soon as they have a martyr, then we've lost, and indeed, Emily Wilding-Davison becomes that figure.
2: That's oh, so emotional.
1: <laughs> oh, so, so, so oh, just the way it's filmed and all the rest of it is is absolutely heart-stopping, it really is. Um, Did you
2: forget, I think, as well, you do forget that someone, when you hear about, oh yeah, Emily Wilding-Davison stepped in front of the King's Horse, I've known that for so long, like, in the back of my mind. I've never thought really about what that means, what it means to do that. It's mm-hmm. nuts, it's just so, I can't comprehend it. So yeah, maybe so
1: emotional. In the film. Often in a film, there's sort of one climactic moment that really yeah. gets me. This film had at least three um, yeah. <laughs> and definitely yeah. one of them was that. And the other one that I wanted to just mention was um, right at the very end when Maud sort of steps out through the that she's sort of silhouetted against this door that's really bright light Mm. and you can see all the women marching past and she sort of like steps out to join them and she just disappears into this Mm. invisible train of there are just too many to be able to to distinguish them that really got me and so she's just part of a movement now
2: yeah and also she's one of many like all these very very intense incomprehensible struggles that she's going through are happening on such a large scale and that's just enormous
1: yeah so we implore you to go and see this film yeah
2: do go and see it I mean I I think that there have been some people who haven't loved it as as much as we have and I think some of their complaints are fair some of them aren't (laughs) but some of them are so go and make up your own
1: mind going to talk about Chewing Gum, which is a new comedy on E4, which I watched the first two episodes of. I think that's all that's been yeah, on, that's all that's right? Been on. And it's it's set in Tower Hamlets on a council estate. It features a young woman called Tracy, and it's just about <laughs> her... Her attempts to navigate sort of having a really religious mother and a really difficult boyfriend and a sort of burgeoning romance for someone else. And it's quite hard to explain what its plot is about because that is basically it, what I've just described. Yeah, the
2: plot is very simple, isn't it? But it obviously, as with many like comedies, the plot is not the key part of the story. It's no. everything around the plot.
1: What did you think of it anyway, Anna? I loved it,
2: as you can probably tell from my like, slight giggle at the fact that her name is Tracy. Like, when small things like that bring laugh to your mind, it's, you know it's been good. Because one of the opening lines of the show is Tracy sat there with her boyfriend and she, there's a lot of kind of talking to the camera. They break yeah. the fourth wall quite a lot in a, in a very nice way. And she says... My mum was going to name me Alyssa, which means sweet angel in Indian, but when I came out she looked at me and she called me Tracy. Tracy. And it sounds like I eat bacon sarmies or have sex at the back of the bus. I don't eat pork, man. And I don't even want to have sex with my boyfriend
1: in a bedroom. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's really funny. But yeah, Michaela Cole, who plays Tracy and who wrote the show, is just brilliant, isn't she? She's really funny. She, like, carries the whole thing, obviously.
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, and as, as she would have to. I mean, it started out as a poem, actually. There was a little kind of making of. Yeah, I watched that. Yeah, yeah, it started as a poem, and then she did it as a play. And I think when it was a play, it was pretty much a one-woman show. Yeah. And now she's written it for TV, and obviously she's built other characters around it. But yeah, it's still very centered on this character of Tracy, who she plays. Something that really struck me about it was that all the colours in it are really bright. Everyone wears really bright colours. The sky is really bright blue. She wears really bright lipstick. Like it has this slight feeling of surreality all the time. And having a central character that guides you through this world that looks like yours but isn't quite right is absolutely brilliant not literally but she sort of takes you by the hand and introduces you to all these characters and Mm -hmm. as you say talks to the camera and kind of gives you the inside scoop on her boyfriend or whoever it is is the subject of that scene
2: yeah she'll give you a little anecdote about her mum that really gives you a suddenly much fuller picture of her like religious background yeah and I think one of the things that's really nice about it is it it isn't this like dingy grey portrayal of life on a council estate because it is set on this enormous council estate in Tower Hamlets but as you say Everything's bright and colourful. There's a real great sense of community.
1: And fun. I really love the scene where her friend has a party as well. And there's people of all ages and stages at this party doing all kinds of things, like dancing, like drinking. So, you know, someone's like kneeling down and being like poured alcohol into their mouth yeah, and yeah. general debauchery. But it's not, it's not portrayed as like the young people, are, you know, having a noisy, rackety party.
0: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: Yeah, no, not life at all.
2: It's everyone. not like, oh, look at binge drinking in the state of Britain. It's just like a real fun... Yeah
1: everyone invited. kind of. Yeah, exactly.
2: Which is so nice because it is really trying to just see like, oh, look at this, like, you know, poverty in the UK. Everyone's miserable because they've got no money sort of vibe that you get from a lot of programs set in similar areas. So that's great. And obviously that comes from the fact that Michaela Cole grew up on a similar Mm. estate and like has a much better understanding of what it felt like to be there.
1: And and I really liked as well, it's sort of centering of racial identity in it, Mm -hmm. but without any kind of judgment or preaching or Or fanfare or or anything like that you know Tracy is a black woman her family is black the way that it sort of comes out is her worry that do white boys know how to kiss yeah I love that line so (laughs) it's it's not like oh I'm really worried that I am making race an issue here or anything like that it's just a kind of in the same way that any woman having her like first real sexual experiences would be worried about kissing,
2: yeah, that's all she 's worried about, and he's a bit clueless isn't he the guy connor there's yeah, so basically the setup is she's she 's as you say she's got this she's engaged to a very religious guy from the estate and then this white guy who's like a poet in inverted commas, like his poetry is so terrible. He likes to sit (laughs) in the dumpster. (laughs) Yeah. They kind of have a flirtation. He says to her something about like, she's got a hat because she works in a shop and he said, you look kind of like a modern slave or something. He says something really offensive Mm. and she like kind of look to him like are you nuts but then kind of lets it slide the episode does not center around yeah. that interaction it's allowed to be a thing that's present without being a, the focus of the show yeah which exactly is, and yeah what but what i think Basically, is the focus of the show is Tracy's like, just sexual desire, basically, yeah. which I loved being the focal point of the show. So she's 24, she's engaged to this really, really religious guy who it's quite heavily hinted is perhaps gay, yeah. <laughs> um, Ronald. yes uh, and she hasn't had sex. She's a 24 year old virgin, and she's kind of sad about that. She's kind of bummed out about it. She's like, do you know what? Actually. I wanna have sex. I just mm. really, really want to have sex. So she's this like very horny twenty four year old clueless woman. And she like do we talk about what happens in the first episode? It's kinda of spoilery. So yeah, if you if you really think the plot is a big part of why you would want to watch this, don't listen. But in the first in the course of the first episode, she breaks off her engagement and starts to explore stuff with this guy on the estate it's really really funny isn't it it's like really like hilarious shots of her like sucking his nose or like yeah you know (laughs) licking the side of his face and ear and just kind of being like do you like that? And him being like, oh, do, do you like this? And they're like, so <laughs> I just like slapping her boobs together, being like, do you like that? <laughs> She's like, I don't know. <laughs> and it's really, really funny to just watch her like be in control but be really
1: unsure at the same time. It was a really, really good melding of sort of physical comedy. Yeah. So it was just laugh out loud funny. Yeah. But also it dealt with, I felt like obliquely, this issue that gets talked about a lot that, you know, young people have this idea of what sex should be like based on what they've seen in films or pornography or yeah. whatever. And so they're sort of like doing the things to each other that they think people do when they're having sex. <laughs> but they're they're like, like dry humping. <laughs> yeah. Um, or like, yeah, her like sort of sucking his nose. And yeah. she's like, do you like that? He's like, not really really. and and so in the sort of comedic way they're learning that actually it doesn't matter what they think they should be doing and that they should just do what they like and stop worrying about it
2: another thing that i find quite refreshing about it is part of the joy of watching it is really getting into that kind of like desire mode of like oh the crush on the boy which is something i love in especially like teen movies this is obviously slightly older than that one thing that they do really well is it's not like oh she's really lusting after him for like eight episodes and then they have amazing sex and that's kind of like it so in the second episode she like like gives him like a furious hand job. <laughs> and actually when you're watching it you're like, oh yeah, I'm into this kind of desire mode. But then you're like, oh, that, that hand job doesn't look exciting. Like, mm. that looks crap. But at the same time, I'm still like going along with it. It's just, it's a good way of looking at relationships in that kind of like idealistic, romancey way, but also undercutting it with basically bad sex, yeah. which is something I really like to see because it's so much more true to life that you would have an enormous crush on someone. And then actually, when it gets down to it, the first few times you get together are not so good because you don't really know what you're doing, but you still know that you really, really fancy them.
1: Yeah. And that's really fun. And, yeah. And that's yeah. a brilliant, and, and it's a brilliant site for comedy as well exactly that that sort of tension another thing that i really liked about the show and i feel like is a hallmark of a a show that could run and run is the fact that it's got so many hilarious sort of small characters yeah i was gonna say the same thing the supporting cast are really really good so like connor's mum is really really funny she she's decided already that tracy is her bff and she keeps consulting her on really intimate sexual matters while Connor's there it's really awkward for him Tracy's own mum is quite funny you get several shots of her sort of evangelizing like outside on the estate trying to tell people not to have abortions and stuff but yeah it's really funny I feel like um, the
2: horny mum is a real it's a trope that's coming up yeah but like, I know that's been a thing in a kind of like Stacy's mum like milf way yeah but I feel like the, the horny mum who's like kind of overweight and like bored with her life is something that's really (laughs) since doctor who with billy piper's mum has just been going up and up yeah so all that comedy is really there and i think her best friend as well whose name escapes me right now um but tracy's best friend on the estate who is an actress that i knew i recognized and i looked her up and she was one of Rudy. Do you know Rudy as in Smithy's little sister from Gavin and Stacey? Oh is she one she's of her She's Rudy's
1: friends? friend. On... Oh that she has the fight with? Yes. yes yeah, I yes. knew I recognised her
2: because so, I saw her and I was like she's made me laugh before I know yeah. it. I know she has and uh, that's who she is and so yeah props to her because she's a great comedy actress who's like not had many parts yet but I mm. think is probably gonna go far because she's excellent in this. And they all are it's just a really great, funny fun, 20 minute short comedy and I can't wait to see more of it it also really made me think back to my Mad Fat Diary yes definitely strong parallels there I think although that's a very different kind of thing because it's dealing with this like young teenager with a lot of dark thoughts and it's much less light in that sense all of Tracy sort of like (laughs) the physical comedy in Chewing Gum where she's like just clawing these boys that is what Ray in my Mad Fat Diary talks about and imagines. She always says like, "Oh, I just want to sit on him until he like, you know." She'll say she'll say these ridiculous analogies about sex that you know that she hasn't really got any experience with, but they're funny because they paint a funny mental picture. Mm. In chewing gum, they actually do that yeah. <laughs> in front of your eyes for you. So both of those things do that really well. That like women trying to figure out the desire that is bigger than they
1: can possibly like cope with. Yeah, but also expressing it. Yeah, and, and yeah, and having it be, as you say, the the centre of the thing. I, I mean, I've only seen two episodes, but I'm definitely going to watch it all the way through, and we'll be we'll be there if we need to campaign for more series of it. Yeah, and I'm going to
2: keep my eyes out for anything else she does, Michaela mm. Cole, because she's clearly a really talented woman so exciting stuff yeah So last week I gave Caroline a copy of Selfish, the Kim Kardashian selfie book that has made waves across the world. Caroline, what did you think of it?
1: It was such an experience. (laughs) reading this book such an experience well because up until now i had very little knowledge or engagement with the kardashians obviously i knew who they were yeah because i don't really think it's possible to be someone who uses the internet in 2015 and not know yeah
2: this is why just to interject so rudely but when i was buying the book in the shop the woman was like what's the photographer's name i was like kim kardashian west she was like and how do you spell kardashian and i was like (laughs) Come on. Come on, yeah. (laughs) Stop pretending.
1: Yeah, so of course I'm aware of who they are and I'm aware of what they do, but I've never watched any of Keeping Up With The Kardashians. And I was, to be honest, a bit hazy on all of the details of how she became who she is Mm. now. So it was a real experience for me to kind of flick, because the point of this book is that she's compiled a selection of her selfies going back to sort of 2007. Mm -hmm. So it was a real experience to be able to see her as she was then, and then... She changes
2: quite... She changes quite yeah. a lot. And,
1: you know, there are selfies that she she does at important events or key turning points in her life. You know, there's the ones she did just before she got married to Kanye West and the ones that she Aww. was doing back with, when she was still friends with Paris Hilton and, yeah, yeah. you know, all of this kind of stuff. So, yeah, it was a real education for me in the kind of oeuvre of the Kardashians. And, again, I found the little captions she writes on them, I found some of them really annoyed me. <laughs> <laughs> like, her constant use of glam as a noun really irritated me. Like, use it in a sentence. Like, um, she constantly says, I always like to take a selfie before I do a photo shoot so I can check that my glam is on point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's annoying. And that is annoying. Sorry, Kim, but it is. But most of the time, I found it quite endearing. Endearing
2: is absolutely the word I use for her as well. She's very sweet.
1: Yeah, I found her really endearing and she just wants to look nice for people. I know. And that's that's (laughs) such an admirable thing. Yeah, so that was... That was really interesting and I think I am intrigued now to have a go at watching Keeping Up With The Kardashians. Oh, I'll send you some Um, good episodes if you like. I also was really interested, so our colleague Anoush had a look at this book when it was just on my desk the other day and her comment at some of the early photos was, wow, she looks so Armenian.
2: Yeah, because Anoush is Armenian.
1: Anoush is Armenian and she wrote a fantastic piece when it was the centenary of the Armenian Genocide And she incorporated some of the stuff that the Kardashians have done in trying to get... Yeah, because they
2: went over there, didn't they? They went over there
1: and they've, you know, they've previously written to the president and stuff trying to get him to recognise the genocide. And And Anoush
2: said a really sweet story about how um, Lamar Odom had a game in turkey and chloe his then wife or still wife was like oh i don't think you should go because the history and but explained it to him and then he didn't go and mm. that's really like that kind of thing is funny to have that intersection of like actual serious history with figures who are so wildly sort of ridiculed as being flimsy and trivial
1: i don't think they're any more or less trivial than anyone else yeah and they're i find just people they're just people <laughs> who Make their money out of their public presentation, and I really don't see how that's any more or less serious than anyone else who does that. It's purely a matter of like snobbery and perception, or I don't even know what. I think it is so interesting the way she thinks about her body and her appearance because I think she does think of it as her well, it is her her main source of income. It mm-hmm. is her, you know, the way she gets on in the world, and that's nothing new. Just looking at all the pictures of her, I was like, this is what Marie Antoinette would have been doing if this technology. Yeah. have been available, you know.
2: She's also very... She's sort of got, like, a theory about her body Mm. as well. She's very, very kind of, like, engaged with it on a daily basis as, like, her, you know, window to the world in a lot of ways and a a tool of expression. And one way I really felt this was when she was talking about... So, obviously, her stepmother, Caitlyn Jenner, when she was transitioning, Kim was one of the people in the family who supposedly... Caitlyn has said this in the press and it was on, you know, the programmes and stuff. Who knows to what extent this is true, but Kim was one of the family members who was very, very supportive from the beginning... And there's a scene in I Am Kate where Kim is trying to describe to the family how she feels Caitlin is feeling. And she says, you know, I know that people are going to laugh at me for saying this because it's obviously not the same thing at all. But when I was pregnant, I felt like I was out of my own body. I hated it so much. Like, I just wanted to feel normal again. And it and I just wanted people to see me as the way I kind of saw myself inside. Caitlin's feeling that. And Mm. I was just like, wow, that's actually, although, yes, people are going to say, oh, my God, being trans is not the same as being pregnant. And of course it's not. There is something quite empathetic in that description and it, her body is very important to her in a way that goes beyond just looking nice, I think.
1: Yes, and and there are a few times in the captions where she, she writes things like, I really loved how I looked here and how that made me feel. Mm. And the fact that she adds that second bit is like, well, obviously I, I looked amazing. Let's not be about the bush here. I looked amazing. But I also felt amazing because of that and because of how other people reacted to that. So I don't know, I I found that interesting. And also the few times when, you know, there's a picture of her pre some photo shoot where she's just like taking it in the changing room or Mm. something before she goes and does some big photo shoot. And there's one time where she said this photo got more attention than the photo the shoot. shoot itself. Yeah. Um, hashtag power of the selfie, which is again <laughs> and anno- her her constant insistence on writing out hashtags is a little bit annoying. But the point that she's making there is that I'm a kind of all access star yeah. in the sense that we've come a very very long. An- another thing that she she really likes to do is she likes to style herself up in a kind of old Hollywood 1930s 40s way. She which, looks amazing. Which she looks incredible yeah. like that. Which I see very much as her being in dialogue with a controlled studio system style. Of celebrity from the early 20th Absolutely, century yeah. and resistant to it because she's saying I control my image I release pictures that I like of me and you can have them and they don't you know I don't have to wait for Annie Leibovitz to want to take my picture
2: you yeah. can look at me right now. Yeah, because I think people, when they heard it was a selfie book, people really ridiculed it. And it's something so interesting to say that, think about how many thousands of professional photographers have taken photos of Kim Kardashian mm. and how amazing she'll look in all of them. The real vanity project, in my mind, is to release a book of your like best pictures taken by other people. Mm. As something very powerful about saying, like, oh, here's some photos I took of myself. I'm going to select and choose which ones you get to see. It's really towing that line between... The public and the private in a really interesting way because there's something kind of inherently intimate about the selfie Mm. as a form, and yet for Kim, it's kind of not as well because her selfies are so caught up in her social media and what she allows people to see of her life. So I I find that like I'm not quite sure what to make of this document. Is it intimate or is it the opposite?
1: Well, it's it's certainly provocative in that sense though because like there's right at the beginning there are some pictures of her in Paris Hilton that she says in the caption, "We took these when we were hiding under a sheet in the back of a car trying to." escape the paparazzi and she's saying so we were hiding from being photographed against our will and while we were doing that we took a picture of ourselves because it was our picture we were having we were having a laugh doing it and we wanted to have that record of that moment and that's for us to decide that's not for some guy on a motorbike to stick his lens up to the window and decide when we're going to be photographed and i thought yeah there's something really resistant about that
2: yeah it's pretty powerful for her to just be like actually i control my own image which is what this book says Hmm.
1: There are loads and loads of pictures of her and with people and without people in the car just before she gets out to get onto a red carpet or to arrive yeah. at an event. And she kind of said, best place to take a selfie, in the car on the way there. Yeah, yeah. Both she's saying, obviously I look my best right now because I've literally just got ready and I haven't been outside yet but also the cameras the external cameras are never going to be invited inside this space this is just me in this car
2: and also it means something financially for her to release a picture of her outfit on instagram before a paparazzi's taken a photo yeah it reduces the worth of that photograph yeah she's doing something really clever just well, by taking like a when, picture of herself it's like in when
1: um, taylor swift did that thing where she you know there was that stupid thing about oh taylor swift doesn't have a belly button because she always wears high-waisted shorts or something <laughs> so she just Released a picture on her Instagram of her, like, on holiday wearing a bikini because that way no paparazzo would be able to get paid. To have a picture of her belly button, to have a, and would hopefully therefore back off a bit when she's on holiday.
2: So a lot of the thoughts I had about this book were like expressed better than I could by Sam Riviere in an article in the Telegraph. Yeah, I feel like that article was really good as well on like the role that technology plays
1: in this book. Yes, because you see the sort of front-facing versus reverse camera. You know, so you see some of the pictures she's holding up the the phone in the mirror and you yeah. see the evolution of the different phones she has exactly but some she holds in the sort of more classic selfie pose she sort of like holds the camera at arms length above her and takes it that way as well
2: yeah, so you get this like evolution of basically the human relationship to yeah. technology. that so he put, as much as the book is a record of Kardashian's development of her own brand, it also charts intriguingly the evolution of the selfie form itself. The phones visible in mirror shots become sleeker as they adapt to their now inbuilt purpose. The compositions become sparser and more expertly angled to suit the demands of different social media.
1: So yeah, that's really kind of a document that is really interesting to have. Yeah, it is. And it's also so interesting that she's done it as a book. It's a nice book. It's high-quality paper. It's- hardback mm. it's really chunky and sort of hefty so she's taken what could be kind of ephemeral digital pixels and she's had them grated into this kind of solid permanent thing
2: there's one thing i really wanted to mention as well which just is like a funny anecdote at the end Basically, there's an episode of Keeping Up With The Kardashians. There's a moment in it that's like been gift to oblivion. It's like really famous <laughs> where Chloe in, I think it's like season two. It's really early on. She gets a DUI. She tries to drive home drunk or something really stupid. And they, the family obviously work really hard to try and get her sentence to be lighter and they fail basically with all their attempts you know obviously a family famous for their sort of legal um, yeah. position and yet they can't get her sentence adjusted so she has to go to jail <laughs> and they're like all going in the car to take her to jail and Kim is like trying to boost the atmosphere a bit because obviously they're all really miserable so she's like taking photos like oh Chloe's going to jail like smile <laughs> Chloe and then she is just like pouting into her camera you know stretched out in front of her just taking all these selfies of her like completely posing. And then Chris, her mum, is like, Kim, can you please stop taking pictures? Your sister's going to jail. Can <laughs> you stop taking pictures of yourself? And then, so yeah, that, that line, obviously, with Kim posing in the background mm-hmm. went nuts because people love that image of her as just, like, self-obsessed idiot. And Kim a few months ago tweeted like oh my god i found the selfies from that from the car from the car episode where my mom tells me to stop taking selfies i'm so annoyed because i really really wanted them to be in the book and mm. then we couldn't find them and i've just found them shall i and she's like tweeting like shall i do a reprint like what can we do <laughs> like this is amazing it's just made my heart warm because she's so in touch with that ridiculous persona like she knows mm. what people think of her and she doesn't care and she's yeah. like in on the joke and i love that about her
1: yeah yeah no it was really interesting i really enjoyed my sort of introduction to the world of all things kardashian i'm so pleased so for next week what's for, the plan for next week we're going to try something a bit different and i'm going to recommend you a few episodes of i think it's sort of late 80s early 90s bbc sitcom called as time goes by uh-huh. which stars Judy Dench and Jeffrey Palmer as two people who they met in the 50s I think he was doing national service she was working as a nurse and they sort of fell in love and then he got sent off to Korea and they lose touch and then they accidentally meet again much later in life and the sitcom is about how they handle that really
2: Okay well I'm sure I'll enjoy that yeah. when I eventually get round to watching it <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Seriously, the pop culture podcast from The New Statesman. I'm Anna. And I'm Caroline.
1: You can find us on iTunes. Our Twitter is at SeriouslyPod. And if you want to send us an email, we're seriouslypod, S-R-S-L-Y, pod at (laughs) gmail.com.